But as, as soon as they're 20 something, they, that goes under title. So that creates this kind of wrong bias in the minds of the readers and the, you know, the entrepreneurial community, the venture community that you need to invest in those young 19, 20 year olds. But when I look at the data, it seems like data by, it, it seems like age on itself is not a contributing factor. It's not a success factor. It's not a negative factor. You know, your age by itself is not. What you've done during that time counts a lot more. Who you know and what you know and a lot of other things do contribute to success, but your age on itself is not. And it turns out actually the median case is, is the age of 34. So half of these founders of successful billion dollar companies were over the age of 34. And half of them. Welcome to the Jess Larson Show, where I interview innovators and leaders. Today on the show, I'm excited to have Ali Tomasev. He's a partner at DCBC, a, a well-known venture capital fund in the Bay Area, especially involved in deep tech and author of one of my new favorite books called Super Founders, which we're going to talk a lot about today. Ali, thanks for making time for this. Thank you, Jess. I'm, I'm grateful to be here. So why don't we start with the book? Tell people, give people the quick overview, and then I've got a million questions. So For sure. So this, this is a project that I started about six years ago at this point, six, seven years ago at this point. So I was an entrepreneur and I kind of, you know, seen, seen the ups and downs. And, you know, there's, there's thousands of companies, tens of thousands of companies that get started every year. And a lot of them get a lot of funding, but, you know, very few of them end up becoming successful multi-billion dollar, you know, outcomes. And I wanted to see, you know, is there anything that's different between these two groups of companies? Companies that raise, you know, venture capital funding, but never get to be these big outcomes. A lot of them failed. And companies that do raise some venture capital funding and do become great outcomes and become companies like Facebooks of the world. And, you know, I, I looked around for a long time to see if there's ever been a data-driven empirical study on this. And it never was. You know, there's, there's nothing there. And the reason is, you know, there, there's the data isn't readily available and this is not, you know, there's a lot of opinions and there's a lot of books written and there's a lot of, you know, thoughts, but none of this is, is backed by data. And because the data is very, very hard to capture, you can, you know, understand the name of these companies and how much funding they, they got. But, you know, there isn't data on how many competitors each of these companies had when they started. There isn't data on what the exact market size was when they started. There isn't data on where the idea came from. You need to go through, you know, lines and lines of, you know, interviews and, you know, go through a lot of work. So it took me four years to collect this data. And this is the largest data that's ever collected on startups. 30,000 data points, 65 data points per company, per startup company for all the startups kind of in the period of time between 2005 and 2018. And I basically dig in into 65 data points, but about the founders, about the company, about the fundraising, about the market to try to understand, you know, what does matter and what doesn't. And I also interviewed hundreds of founders and I, I published some of the interviews with people like founders of Zoom, founders of PayPal, founders of GitHub, founders of Cloudflare, and a lot of, you know, be these big startups with interesting stories. Yeah, no kidding. By the way, I love Herak Juan. He's, he's one of our earlier interviews starting this show. Great. And I was just so impressed with his like obsession for customers. I, yes. I feel like he's like on another level there. 100%. Yeah. The humility that he has, you know, even after building one of the greatest, you know, empires of SaaS, but the, you know, the level of humility and the obsession of the customer is, I think, what, what sets him apart. It, it was interesting when COVID hit to see, I don't know, I feel like Zoom won COVID. And uh, right. in certain ways, I wasn't that surprised because of how much he cared about the customers and it came through in the product. So, and I always like to, for me, I I always feel like, at least in in Western society, we do it wrong, where we put the quote first and then we put who it was by second. I want to know who something was by before I want to know what they have to say, kind of thing. Mm -hmm. um, like, if it's by my brother-in-law, who I love my brother-in-law, but if it's by Warren Buffett, it's going to hold a little more water for me. I want to know that ahead of time.
time. So before we dive more into the book, can you talk just a little bit about the companies you started and and just a little bit more about, uh, well, let's start there. Why don't we start with the companies that you started and then I have more questions for you. For sure. Yeah. So I'm, I'm originally from Tehran, Iran. And you know, my journey, I, I was a scientist for a while. I thought I'm going to, you know, go become, you know, get a PhD and become a scientist. For a while, I was, you know, publishing a bunch of papers and all I was doing is kind of doing machine learning, deep learning research on, you know, the body signals and human computer interfaces. So, you know, a lot of my my time and early on went on to kind of doing things related to biosignals, brain computer interfaces, things that, you know, are kind of in the center of attention now with what Elon Musk and Neuralink are doing. But I was doing these things about 12 years ago. So that was kind of, you know, that's where I learned the craft of the science and how to deal with statistics and how to collect data and how to run a study, It'll run a proper academic study on something like this. I had one of the, the kind of first thing that Roger that I started was was a fintech project. I started the app for trading stocks on the on the Iranian market on the Tehran stock exchange. That was kind of the, my my first foray into the world of entrepreneurship and kind of you know learning learning the ropes. And then my second company was in, into the in the hardware ecosystem of building hardware for people in the industrial spaces, kind of critical hardware for people working in in warehouses and factories. And then I I came to the Bay Area to Silicon Valley and I went to Stanford Business School and then joined DC. VC about five years ago, and we've grown a lot since since I've joined. I mean, it was a small team back back in the day. Now, you know, we are we are a large team and managing over three and a half billion dollars for for our LPs, and you know, getting to about twenty unicorn companies, uh, including three that uh, I'm kind of involved. How exciting is that? So at Blocks, when you say for industrials, what's an example of those wearables or those things that you were doing in the industrial sector? Yes, yeah, so it's basically for categories like warehouses, construction manufacturing, mining sites, basically wherever that you need an industrial worker to have information readily available and some sensing equipment and sensors with them, including locations, including, you know, gas monitoring, including safety, safety sensors, and also to, to relay communication back and forth between supervisors and employees. Oh, that's great. So at DCVC, what are the three billion dollar startups that you've been most involved with there? So one is called Carbon Health. It's a company started here in the Bay Area by Aaron Bali. Aaron Bali actually previously founded a company called Udemy in the education market. That's also a, you know, a public billion dollar company. Now, at the time that, that I funded this company, it wasn't. It was kind of much smaller. And Carbon Health was actually one of the first companies that, that you know, with the conviction to invest in came from the data. So I would, I would say that was probably one of the first data-driven decisions that I made that led to this great outcome at this point. The other two, one is called Stark. It's an Israeli company working on basically scalability solutions for, for blockchains. It's a layer two on top of Ethereum. You could kind of say it's a Solana competitor. The idea is you can basically kind of like an MP3, MP3, all the data that you need to do about the transaction on the blockchain and kind of, you know, uh, put a lot more information on one block that will basically reduce the cost of every transaction, every information by 100 so that you can do, you know, you can trade more cheaper. One of, you know, basically solve the main problems with it, which is the scalability and related with them. And the third one is, again, a, a company in the blockchain space called Axelar that, that helps basically chain between the different, you know, chain worlds that have created have been created at this point if you want to port from one DeFi chain to another and that's a Canadian oh, company my homeland that's that's exciting congratulations on those thank you 
So can we can we start going through some of the elements from the book? Let let's start with let's start with this one. Tell, I'm gonna I'm gonna quote statistics and then you correct me where I get them wrong. Okay, sure. But the idea that like seventy percent of these billion dollar companies were not creating their own new category. Is that right? Yes, that is correct. Yeah, I mean one of this is one of the things that a lot of books have been written about. You know, the blue. You know, we, you have to create a new market. You have to create a new opportunity. And it turns out you don't have to. I mean, the majority of these companies went in in a market that was, you know, well known. There was there was a market dynamic already in place. There were customers. There were price points, and they created a better product and they won over the competition. That kind of as basic as that. Obviously, there was a lot of hardships along the way creating a product that was either better than anyone else and getting the distribution right. But they didn't create a new category. They didn't create a new market. And they just basically went over that. And this was one of the one of the kind of stereotypes that I want to correct. Like not every unicorn company has to create a new category and basically reinvent everything. Actually, the majority of them tend to have go, went on an established market. And also in the data, I compare the unicorns and the, and the non-unicorns and basically try to understand what is what makes you more or less likely to succeed. And in this case, going into a market that was actually more established made you more likely to succeed rather than the other way around, which kind of seems seems understandable, seems basic, but kind of goes against a lot of a lot of other things that have been talked about. Yeah. And I apologize if you've already said this, but can you repeat how many unicorns were in the study and then how many venture funded companies that did not reach that status? were, were so, Yeah, so there was tens of thousands of uh, venture back companies. So my threshold was three million for the, for, for, for the funding level. So any company that kind of passed that was kind of randomly sampled into the study. And, and at the point that I did this study, there was about 200 something unicorns in the group. Right now, there's probably seven, 800. Some, many of them will not survive. But again, at that point, these are companies that have passed the point for, for some time and they were kind of stable unicorns. And again, I, I when I look back at the book, none of the none of the examples or none of the stories that, that have been covered in the book has, has yet turned into a failure. Some of them will. It's it's inevitable. Yeah. Here's another one that was interesting to me is this idea that 58% of them did not go to a top 10 school. Am I getting that math right? That is correct. Yes. So one other basically stereotype is that you you need to have gone through a top 10 school or an Ivy League school to, to start a billion dollar company. And again, when you look at the data, about you know, one third, one out of every three founder of a unicorn had gone through a top 10 school. And there's only top 10 schools and tens of thousands of schools out there. So obviously they were more likely to go on and you know succeed in starting billion dollar companies. And even when I compare the two, two groups, the unicorns and the venture funded non-unicorns, the ones that had gone to a better school, they were more likely to go on and succeed. But again, that was only one third of the group. The other, you know, the other 58% had not gone to a top 10 school. So there's there's a lot of hope for, for people who have not. And in fact, the majority of unicorns end up being started by the long tail of the, the, the colleges that, that graduate entrepreneurs. One, one interesting thing that I found there was the impact that location and basically the entrepreneurial culture has over like the academic ranking. So there's there's some schools that, you know, are great in terms of the academic ranking and the scientific output. And there's some schools that just because of their geography and where they're located and the work opportunities that come out of it or the, you know, or the relationship with the industry, they tend to end up producing more unicorn founders. And one example of that is San Jose State University, not a top ranking university by any means, a state school, but just by proximity to, to, to Silicon Valley, it has produced a fair number of, you know, 
know, unicorns, probably more than some uh, Ivy League schools out there. Yeah, interesting. I sometimes I'm mystified by up here in Utah. Like, I don't know if it's currently true, but a little while ago, we were second behind California for the most unicorns per capita. Yeah. And I think part of it a little bit is, you know, something like, I don't know, 80 plus percent of the population of the entire state is all within, I don't know, an hour and a half, two hour drive of each other. And so mm. everybody, everybody who drives between Salt Lake and Provo, the two biggest cities, they have to drive past this Silicon Slopes is what they call it here. Right. You see all the billboards and whatever, and they keep making it in the news. And so there's just so many people that keep seeing other people make it, you know, like one of my friends we've had on the show, we had him on when he raised 30 million, when he raised 250 million, and then they just sold the company for two and a half billion, right? Oh. And then all of our friends hear about that story and everybody talks about it and it starts like, there's like this belief and there's a little bit of network and these kind of things. And I wonder if that kind of feeds on itself. Do you think that could be the case? 100%. I think there's basically this, this local network effect of people who see other people who made it, people who become role models, who become angel investors. And you just need need that talent to keep rolling back. And that's why it feels like, you know, location is more important than like the academic ranking of a school. And more more like, you know, it's, it, it becomes a cultural thing, right? If there's entrepreneurs who are coming out of a school and they're succeeding, they come back, they help, they, they give talks, and that just inspires the next generation from that school. So regardless of the academic ranking of that school, you know, these local network effects get shaped independently. Yeah, here's another one. I mean, how many times have we all heard, don't do business with family, don't invest in business where family, it's, you know, brothers or spouses or something. And yet your right. data says that that's not that's not necessarily a no-fly zone. Can you talk about that? Exactly. So I think one one of these, again, misconceptions is about, you know, teams of founders who, who are family members, you know, brothers, fathers and sons or fathers and daughters or, you know, or couples, married couples or, you know, couples in relationships. There's a lot of, you know, thoughts about investing in these types of teams. And it turns out when you look at the data, this on itself is not a negative signal. It's not a positive signal. It's not a negative signal either. And there's, you know, countless examples of companies that have been started by couples or, you know, started by family members that have succeeded. One example of that is actually a Canadian company. Some of my friends, three brothers who started this company called Applyboard is in the education technology space. They help students get, get college admissions and kind of streamline that process for colleges. And, you know, it's a unicorn, a couple billion dollars of valuation, hundreds of millions of dollars in revenues. And Spacex started by three brothers. And for a long time, they had they had trouble raising money from, you know, reputable venture, venture capital funds. And one reason for that was they were, they were seeing, you know, three, three brothers. I think two of them are twins. It, well, that's it. That's encouraging for me because I've owned, I've owned companies with my brother since 2005. So mm -hmm. helps, helps you feel like, okay, we're not precluded from more success. Here's another one. Can you talk about the idea of, of the biases people have around age that maybe aren't necessarily accurate according to the data? Exactly. So I, I mean, there is, there's two camps around this, right? There's the there's the old that talks about experience and you know you having you know needing needing gray haired people to start companies to to start successful companies. That's one camp. The other camp is basically what you see in the media, the the television shows that have been you know created around successful startups. I think that the social network movie kind of inspired or created a lot of in, in, you know thoughts about what companies become successful. The stories of Bill Gates, the stories of you know a lot of successful entrepreneurs, and that's 
has created this this mindset of, you know, if if you're not a 19-year-old, you know, college dropout, you are not going to be able to start a large company. Because a lot of, you know, examples that we have seen in the media, we revolve around that. You go on TechCrunch and, you know, half the articles start with, you know, this this title, something in the title. Look at this 19-year-old. Look at this 22-year-old founder start this company. They never talk about, you know, look at this 43-year-old founder. They just talk about the company. They never say the age of the founder. But as, as soon as they're 20-something, they, that goes under title. So that creates this kind of wrong bias in the minds of the readers and the, you know, the entrepreneurial community, the venture community that you need to invest in those young 19, 20 year olds. But when I look at the data, it seems like data by, it, it seems like age on itself is not a contributing factor. It's not a success factor. It's not a negative factor. You know, your age by itself is not. What you've done during that time counts a lot more. Who you know and what you know and a lot of other things do contribute to your success, but your age on itself is not. And it turns out actually the median case is, is the age of 34. So half of these founders of successful billion dollar companies were over the age of 34 and half of them were younger. And then I feel like I was listening to one of your interviews in certain sectors, maybe it was healthcare or something that the average age was even higher than that, like 42 or something. Is that right? That is correct. Yes. So in in, in the healthcare industry and in some some certain industries that the age skews older. But again, for example, you, you may assume that the consumer companies, the B2C company founders are younger and the B2B, the enterprise company founders are older. That would be something that you would you would kind of think. Turns out it's actually not not a correct, you know, there, there are successful B2B companies started by young people, they're successful B2C companies started by older people. So that's, that's again, not, not necessarily a contributing factor. Well, what do you think is one of the oldest CEOs, like the oldest founders when they were founding a company that became a status company? That's a good question. I don't remember the oldest. I think one of them would be the founder of Workday. Again, if, if, if not looking into the Dave Duff founder of Workday. So I think when he started, he, he's, he was born in 1940. So I think when he started Workday, he must have been 65. And, you know, Workday is a massive, massive company. And he had a successful, you know, outcome before that. And obviously, you know, so there, there is, there's examples of these. Obviously in biotech, we have a lot of examples where like there's a professor that's part of a founding that, that's obviously even, even older than that, that age. Well, kind of blows that out of the water that you have to be in your 20s to start, right? Yeah, 100%. And, you know, or or that you need to be older or or any misconceptions that you may have related to age and success of a company. Yeah. Well, can we talk about some of these things that you did find that correlated to higher chance, like larger industry, defensibility, previous, you know, previously creating value, character of the founder, things like this? 100%. Yes. So, you know, so the book is divided into two parts, right? One, you know, half of the findings is about things that do not matter. Things that you should, you should just leave, leave alone and, you know, don't care about. If you're a founder, you should be like, you know, I don't care how old I am. I don't care if I'm technical or not. I don't care if I went to a good university or not. Some of these things you can kind of put aside and there are some things that you can develop and you can learn and you can make it better. One of them is is basically what I talk about being a super founder. And basically the way it's defined is if you're an entrepreneur, you're a lot more likely to succeed not in your first time. So it would be your second time or third time starting a company, right? So, but it doesn't mean that you, you, you know, you start five companies, you know, parallel or just back to back and just kind of, yay, okay, I'm on my sixth company. I'm more, you know, I just start 15 companies and I, one of them will be unicorn. It's not like that. It's more about, you know, you get something to a finish line. You start it, you raise venture capital funding, you build a team and you build something of value that, you know, somebody is willing to pay a price. And it doesn't matter if it's a big price. So you're not talking about serial on 
entrepreneurs who have sold companies for $500 million or $200 million or even $100 million. You're talking about people who started something, raised some funding, created a team, and created something of value that, you know, you could sell for even, you know, $10 million. You can sell the team or you can sell the, the technology. You you go through the cycle once and you, you kind of do that thing. And then the next time around, you're actually a lot more likely, you're about 400% more likely to start a billion-dollar company the next time around because now you know how to build a team. Now you have access to venture capitalists. Now you know, you know which problems to go and solve for. And hopefully you've made a little bit of money that now you're actually looking for something much, much bigger. You're kind of like, okay, I know how this game works. Now let me go and make create a big impact. So that's one of the things. And there's something you can build. You know, if, if you start something and it's not a big success or it's a failure, just go and do something again. And this time around, it's going to be more likely to to be a larger outcome. And then the, the, la- the next time around, it's going to be your, you know, very impactful, multi-billion dollar, hopefully tens of billions of dollars of a company. Same idea for venture capitalists. You know, if you if you like a founder, keep investing in them, even if their fa- their first or second try kind of fails and, you know, encourage them to pivot and go and do do a lot more. So that's one concept. And this is the key concept of the book. This is the idea behind, you know, being a super founder. And it turns out, you know, a majority of, of unicorn founders fit within this pattern. And they're actually a lot more likely to start these multi-billion dollar companies. So that's one. The other thing, as as you mentioned, it's basically, you know, going going after an established market that, you know, you know there's demand for. You're not kind of creating the demand in your mind. It's it's much, much easier to go and innovate on a product or go and innovate on a business model or go and innovate, you know, on something else, not on the market alone. The idea that you can, you know, you build something and the market would come for it, that's very risky. One of the things that you, you I couldn't crack the code basically for it is, is, the, is the idea of timing. It's very hard to crack code of time. It should be, should be early to a market. Should you be late to a market? You know, should you be first? And one of the things that, it, you know, turns out uh, the majority of these successful companies were not, you know, even in the first five companies to try an idea. They came and, you know, ideas come in cycles and a lot of companies fail and eventually they, they become successful. In the book, I, I talk with Tony Fidel, who, who who was kind of the one of the co-inventors of the iPhone and the iPod and, and the founder of iPod. And before that, 1995, he was in a he was in a company called General Magic. They were building the smartphone, and obviously that company failed failed large. And then a couple other projects that he did failed. And eventually, you know, 11 years after the smartphone, kind of you know the iPhone was was a success factor that came out of that that process. We see the same thing with like DoorDash and Web. This idea, you know, a lot of times ideas fail in the first cycle or second cycle. And this is not the first company. It's actually the first cycle. You know, companies, ideas come every, you know, five or 10 years and they fail and they fail. And eventually, you know, if it's the right idea, it comes out. And you need to understand why this time around it's it's more helpful to to go and do this. And competition. Actually, you know, a lot of founders try to stay away from competition or kind of talk about, talk to investors about their company in a way that nobody has thought about it. Nobody ever plays in this game. Nobody, you know, we have no competitors. And actually not a good sign. Turns out 85% of unicorns did have competitors even on day one. So they started this idea. They knew there's competitors. There are people who are working on this. And they knew what they have that enables them to be better than them. And it turns out actually it's better you're better off if if your competitors are large incumbent companies. So they they've paid the price to educate the market. They've paid the price to ready the market. They have invested and invaded the time. And now you know, you know, there's a hundred billion dollar market out there and you can create a small team and you know go after the inefficiencies of a product that you know a large company at this point like Microsoft, at, at a previous point like Oracle. 
you know, the companies that it might be hard for them to catch up with a startup that you go and even if you, if you, if you capture a small part of that market with laser focus on, you know, creating a better experience with a customer, those are the types of, you know, scenarios that you better go after or, or, or cases like Flexport that you go after a market that has a ton of competitors, but they're all small and, you know, they're kind of, you know, a fragmented market. So, you know, the data shows you competition is good, but you need to choose your compet- you know, competitive landscape wisely. And it's either, you know, old incumbents or a fragmented market. So these are kind of some of the examples of where it turns out, you know, the, the, the data can help you on, you know, in, into how you how you select your market, how you select the competitive landscape and, you know, what else you can do. You know, um, one of the things that I enjoyed the most in the book along that idea of what you can do that I feel like gets glossed over by other people. Can you talk about the concept of defensibility and, and some examples of it? Yes. So, you know, it turns out defensibility is also one of the things that, that does matter and it's important. However, I think that the first thing that that may may come to your mind with defensibility is, you know, patents and IP. Turns out actually that's not the that's not the important type of defensibility. Actually, very few unicorns rely on patents for their defensibility. Defensibility mainly comes from some sort of a network effect, some sort of an scale effect, right? You you go with large, you grow large, and because of that, something is better, something is easier. So you may have network effects because of the data, you may have network effects because of the marketplace, kind of the, the type of users that you have. You may have network effects because you have a scale and things are cheaper for you now, and it's cheaper, like Amazon has a scale network effect. Facebook has user network effects. Some companies have data network effects. The more people use it, the more data there is. So you need to see what makes you better every day that your product is getting built. And if you cannot find that, if you, you know, if you built this product after four years and, you know, any other company with, with a lot of money, the money wouldn't be a problem, right? You have to think about, you know, in five years, if you keep building this product, if a company with a lot of money comes in, what stops them from being the same as you in six months, right? And if you don't have the answer for that, that's where the trouble starts because then that market would become, start, start becoming commoditized and you wouldn't have enough margins on that product. So you need to think about where defensibility comes into play. And turns out a majority of the unicorn, successful unicorn companies did have defensible, defensibility through some sort of a network effect or scale network effects or something else that, that helped them stay relevant for a long amount of time. And the number one was network effects. And I, and I recommend reading the book by Andrew Chen on this subject about network effects. Do you remember what that one's called? It's called The Cold Start Problem. Okay, I'm gonna have to get that. So maybe maybe my next questions are gonna go this direction. I feel like, you know, one of the best ways to learn something is to have to teach it. So mm-hmm. where where you had to do all the work to figure this all out, how do you feel like it's affected your investment decisions? And, and, you know, it's been six years. What do you find yourself doing more now than you did before you did all this work? Yeah, so I think that it has affected me in two ways and I've tried to kind of make it come come through in the book so, so it has the same effect for people. I think the first one is basically reducing the biases and the stereotypes. So, you know, a lot of these things about, you know, I need to, I still hear that still, you know, 2022, the data is out there, the book is out there. I mean, I don't expect everyone to, to have read it, but I go on Reddit, I go on, you know, uh, Twitter, I go on Quora, and there's still people that talk about these things that I never invest in non-technical founders, or I never invest in, you know, founders who are older than that, or I never invest in, like, why? The data is out there, you know, these are all misconceptions, you know, built into your mind. And you're doing a disservice to yourself by, you know, believing in certain stereotypes and, you know, making that your investing character or, you know, just giving that, that, that advice out 
that kind of creates the you know environment that entrepreneurs think there's one way to becoming successful and there's one way to becoming you know founder of a large company and that one way is basically what you would read in TechCrunch or what comes out as a movie which which turns out to be a minority of things you know it turns out only four percent of founders of unicorns are those kind of Ivy League dropout founders that that you may kind of hear the most about and these are you know because they're the very famous examples they're the Zuckerbergs and the Bill Gates of the world but it's not it's not it's not a majority of the founders of unicorns by any means. It's not the major story by any means. It's the minority of the way that founders become successful. That's one. The second is basically looking for this this trait of being a builder and this trait of, you know, having the resources and the soft skills more than, you know, domain expertise or more than being from the same industry. You know, some of the things that used to matter to me a lot was, you know, how much do you know about this industry or how much are you from this industry? Or, you know, it turns out, again, the data shows that that doesn't matter. What matters is, you know, how much you can influence people, how much you can buy your way into connecting with the most powerful people in this space. How much you can, you know, how much network do you have and how, who you can connect with. So again, I look for people who are resourceful, who can, who can connect with the right people, who can hire the right people, who can raise the right funding. And I look for people who have, you know, who have the character of, of being a builder and jumping through the hoops of getting something to the finish line. And regardless of, you know, how big of an impact or an outcome they had previously, I look for evidence that that, that character exists. And it's not like, you know, I would I would choose someone with that character over like a hot, you know, someone with the high ranking, you know, executive rank out of a large corporate or a Facebook or a Stripe that, you know, they've managed a lot of people. They've grown up in a corporate ladder very successfully, but they haven't, you know, built anything independently before that delivered value. So I would definitely pick somebody with, with the character of being a builder and being that resourceful. No, the, those were a couple of things that, again, I was surprised about in the book. And I feel like so many people have opinions, but I love your book because you have data. Yeah. But things like, you know, that 30, only 30% of those unicorn founders came from the industry or that that this idea of being a value builder matters so much as becoming a super founder. Like I didn't, I believe you said that some of them, they'd actually built nonprofits before. Like it wasn't even a for-profit company. Is that right? Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Nonprofits or projects that, you know, open source projects that they've built before, basically, you know, they've, they've created something of, of value to the others. I think that this is the story of the founders of Cloudflare, the CEO of Cloudflare. You know, he had started this open source project before Cloudflare, basically trying to do the same thing. But, you know, for, for a couple of years, he, he was doing this as a nonprofit open source project that ended up becoming Cloudflare later on. Yeah. Well, shifting gears a little bit, maybe to DCBC, what is your average bite size? What What do you guys like to invest as far as a check amount? What's the range? Yeah. For so I, I think we, we are very flexible. We we have written checks as small as $100,000 and probably as large as $40, $50 million in, in companies. So it's a very big range. We, we have a big fund to support these companies. But again, we, we, we are early stage investors. So our first bite is typically a C2 series involvement. But, you know, we have a lot of capital to, to deploy and so, to support these companies as they grow. Especially because in deep tech, there's typically these these valleys of that you know companies have need a lot of funding before there's commercial validation, and you know in a B two B company that may happen at a Series A or Series B, but in a deep tech company that probably happens at a Series D. So there's a lot of you know gap in funding that the rest of the market cannot fill, and us as early stage investors need to be able to fill the gap until companies have commercial validation or or commercial success later on to get gross funding. And for people not familiar, how is deep tech? defined. 
So deep tech is basically any company that requires hard engineering, complex science to to basically solve solve a problem that's that that has a market that's big. So you know the market is there. You know it's something that people need and want and ready to prepay you millions of dollars. It may come the cup. There might be government contracts or you know for space stations or there might you know these are things that you know there's there's revenue cycles and there's demand for it, but it's very hard to build. So it might be a cancer drug, it might be a drug therapy, it might be a new material, it might be a new, you know, robotic system that, you know, there's, there is commercial need for this product and it's just hard thing to build. So we look for the, the kind of teams that can put together the scientists and the engineers and spend, you know, a couple of years to build the product that actually delivers on that commercial value. So that's kind of what we go after. And it might be, again, we've invested in agriculture, we have invested in food, we have invested in robotics, manufacturing, mining, healthcare, biotech, drug discovery, pharma. So a, a big range of industries, but the, the thing that shares between all of them is how hard it is to develop that technology. Yeah. You know, we have a lot of entrepreneurs that listen to the show. Sitting on the other side of the table, I'm wondering what kind of fundraising advice you have for entrepreneurs. Fundraising advice. You know, it's sometimes it, these things come, seems easy when it comes out of an investor's you know mouth. And, you know, for, for, for the person sitting there and actually doing the work, things are much, much harder. So, and I've been there before and I know it's hard. So for any entrepreneurs who are kind of listening, don't, don't take what I say, you know, sir, I know it's what you're doing is much, much harder than, than what I say. But I think that the, 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 your big goal is to put yourself in a position that you don't need to ask for money, right? You know, it's, and, and again, this, this perception have been, have been there that, you know, it's startups who go after, after investors and, you know, it's always a hard thing and, you know, it's, it's a tough thing. But actually, when I look at the data, these unicorn companies, they, they were able to raise a lot of money, even from the first round of investing. And even from the first round of investment, a lot of them were kind of hot companies that a lot of investors were trying to court. So care about your company and not the investors and put the company in a position that investors like me are knocking on your door and, you know, wanting a way to get in. So again, focusing, focusing on the metrics of the company and putting it in a position and creating the narrative around it that, that makes it attractive and sexy, that's a lot more important than, you know, whatever different ways that you need to, you know, pitch change your pitch deck or tell a better story. I think there's a lot of focus on, you know, hey, how can I create a better pitch deck? Should this be slide one or should it be slide four? Or, you know, should I use this color or that? Like none of that matters. If you have a good company, like I would invest tens of millions of dollars without seeing one slide of deck. And I've done that. And these are companies that become successful. So pitch deck doesn't matter. Narrative and story, you know, matter to some extent, but just like put your company with a metrics that, that becomes very attractive to founders or put the right team together with, you know, that I see, okay, how did you, how was you able to convince this person to join your team as the third person? You know, they, they left up millions of dollars in compensation and left your, you know, little startup. That means something. I need to invest in you because I trust that person's judgment. That's great advice. I mean, what, what I'm hearing, and please correct me, is this idea of like, like, don't worry about what order the slides are in. Worry about making your company a better company. Yeah. I mean, if if it's a better company, investors will come after you. So that's all, that's the only thing you should care about, not not how slides look. Or don't spend three months just like building a better slide deck. Don't do it. Just make a better company. <laughs> that's solid advice. I'm interested, when you think about the areas that you focus on, what do you see coming down the pipe that the people who don't do what you do all day might not see? Mm, the world would look a lot different. At some point, it wouldn't be soon, but it wouldn't be too far either. So, and and that's in some certain industries and in some other industries, not much happens. So it feels like, you know, investors sit in a privileged position to actually control, you know, where, where funding and where innovation goes. And this these things do have a real impact on how the world look like in 10 or 15 or 20 years. So 
don't expect a lot of things to change in, in the next two or three years, but like there's a ton of fascinating technologies come into play and like with, with the speed that I, I don't think we've ever seen before in terms of the deep technologies that have built new materials, new mining technologies, new, you know, aviation systems, new autonomous car systems that get built, new robotic system that just fundamentally shifts the the, the economics of, of how things get done, done outside, how fundamentally shift the labor economics. So a lot of these things would change in the future. And, you know, there will be a lot of societal and governmental shift that needs to happen at a level that can basically retrain people to do other things or basically, or think about the societal impact of all this technology coming into the world. And for that, I think we need, we need more and more better people to be in the government. And I don't see myself doing that, but I hope more and more smart people just, you know, think about these things from private good go to public and think about the impact of these technologies. Interesting. Um, you know, I'm I'm interested. You think about the success you've had. You know, you know there aren't there aren't that many folks who grew up in Tehran who are now partners at multi billion dollar funds in Silicon Valley. What do you think? What do you think you've done differently to achieve the level of success you have? Huh. Well, I mean, at, at some point, a lot of it is luck and and privilege of you know having been able to to come to the United States and work and live here. So I I I I owe a big part of it to being able to just be here and and use the infrastructure. That's been built, but more than that is being brave to do things differently. I mean, at, I think at every point of time, I I did the thing that none of my friends were doing, and and it was time. It was very tough at that point socially, you know, just the things that you're doing, and you were you were just creating a road and a path that that was never there before. So you were just paving paving pavement at at each point of time, like with the things that I did at the point that you know I I immigrated and how I did it, and you know at every point I didn't do any of the things that any of my friends or classmates or high school friends or even now at this point that I'm a VC are doing. So I think at every point it's just being brave of doing things that no one else is is thinking of doing. It pays off in the long run and it's painful in the short run. Can you give us some examples of some of those things? So I think, let me see. I When I was in high school, I was starting companies. I, I, I started a company, right? And that that's in Tehran. And I was going to Olympiads and stuff. So that was kind of, you know, very different from what, what was typically being being done, you know, of people thinking of going to a better university and being prepared for those exams. And I was like, you know, can I build this app for, for the stock market application, right? Kind of very different. In in college or, you know, in undergrad, when I was in London, so I studied at Imperial College in London. Again, I was on a student visa and I was not supposed to be doing any of these things I was supposed to be studying. But I think I, I went to the class... <laughs> Probably, you know, for five or 10% of, of the whole time, I, I probably went to like 20 class sessions and the rest of it, I was outside of the class and, you know, working on publishing papers. And, you know, it was university related stuff. I was, you know, publishing papers and doing research, but I was not in the classroom. I was hanging out with, with you know, postdoc students and, you know, PhDs working on academic papers. And once I got through that, I was, you know, I was working on on, on companies and on starting kind of my, my second effort and second company. So at, at each of that points, you know, it, it was a lonely, like move me moving to London, like immigrating to London without knowing anybody there or like without having anybody like on my own at the age of 18, just coming out. That was, that was one point of it. Or right from there, kind of coming to the U.S. right after that experience, just on my own again. Like a lot of people, when they immigrate, they come for university or for, you know, they create those social environments around them because they come because they come to a university to study a PhD or do a, you know, undergrad. And I didn't have those, those kind of social layers around me because at every point I had to kind of, you know, 
say goodbye to a lot of things that I had and say, okay, I now go and immigrate to a country that I know anybody. And, you know, I kind of have to hack the system and get a visa and get there. So that's kind of, you know, the, the tough thing at, at each of these steps. Interesting. When you have advice, when you have, when you have advice for other people to, to think through their version of that, how would you tell them to, you know, what kind of a decision tree, what kind of principles would you have to help them think through that for themselves? I would say thinking from the first principle, like at, at any point versus kind of following the crowd and basically doing what's the best. Like if you're in other, like Imperial College of London, right? My, the best and smartest students ended up going to an investment bank, right? Or working at consulting and they've, you know, they've been there and now they're, you know, they've gone, gone up the ladder and, you know, they've done that. Right. And, and that's good. And, you know, that, that was the best of them. And there was there was a ranking and, you know, the, the, the non-performing students didn't get there. And I didn't care about any of that. I didn't do any internships during my, my time to be able to get on those corporate ladders and get those jobs. And I was like, you know, I'm not going to be able to those, get those jobs and I'm not going to care about that because I know what I'm doing. And that takes a certain type of courage because you kind of know in yourself that, you know, if I wanted to, I could do all of these stuff. But I'm not going to care about it, right? And it takes takes certain kind of braveness to be able to say, okay, I don't care what other people are saying. I'm I have thought about it, and I think this is the best path for me. So, and, and that's kind of thinking about the first principle. I think even now in investing, right? You know, other investors would think, oh, this is a hot space. We should invest in that, or this is a hot company. You should inv- you should think about every single investment or every single decision in your career from the first principle and think about think about because. It seems to me a lot of decisions or a lot of trends are just heard that groupthink that happens in 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 this in the society and among you know po- you know professionals that are in these you know high end careers and you know a lot of these if you think about first principles you may not do them so I think at every at every step think from first principle and don't care what other people are doing like don't talk to other people about their career choices and stuff like go and be their friends and have fun and party but like you know don't take their advice on these things yeah. Um, <laughs> that's great advice. Maybe, maybe for a final question here, you know, you're an ambitious guy, but you're also busy. When you think about, when you think about the value of taking the time to write a book like this and taking the time away from your day job to come on shows like this, in what ways do you feel like it's an advantage for you? So I think, so I've, I've written a lot. Actually, this is my second book. My first book was a science book. I wrote a book on physics, on teaching advanced physics to, to high school students. And I wrote that when I was a high school student. And this was, again, one of those things that, you know, I didn't care about get, getting a good grade or which university I en- ended up at. And I cared about, you know, doing, and no, this was probably the youngest book that, youngest, you know, scientific book written by anybody in, in that, at least, at least in that country. So the, I think the value, I've, I've seen the value of writing, which is kind of like a, you're creating a network and you're creating a lot of connections even when you're asleep, even when you're not working, even when you're not doing something, right? So so it takes, it took me a long time to write this book. It took me six years to write this book, right? It's, and it's a lot of time commitment. And before that, I've written, you know, blog posts and things that, and these things take a lot of time and a lot of effort. But number one, it puts you in a, in, in a format that you have to think. I think you think when you have to write, or at least I think when I have to write. Right? So if I didn't have to write this book, I wouldn't have thought so deeply about a lot of these topics. I think that's the one thing. And the second thing is it's it's a network building thing that just like does the work when you don't. It's kind of like earning a salary or having equity in a company. You always at the end earn more through having equity. This is kind of the same thing. You know, you, do you want to earn a salary or do you want to have equity? I think writing is kind of owning equity in the world. Yeah. 
I, I, I've come to start calling it credibility marketing. You know, I get people <laughs> on this show who, you know, David Cody, he took Honeywell from 20 billion to 120 billion. Yeah. And then when he's done that, he still goes and writes a book. And, you know, like it's, it does feel like a really high leverage opportunity to, you know, to write books, to go on shows, to start a show, things like this. And I haven't, I've never thought about it the way that you said, though, like, it's like building your network while you're sleeping because it's doing the work for you, right? It is. And, you know, it also opens up a lot of avenues for you, just like the fellow authors that you, you can talk with just because you're, it's kind of like, you know, if, if you are a private pilot and, you know, you're in general aviation, you, you kind of, it's like a hobby, right? You create the, the network with other pilots or, you know, you would do the same thing when you were authors. So, and a lot of, you know, high achieving people end up becoming authors at one point of their careers. And it's kind of opens up that avenue just because you have, you've gone through the experience of having agents and, you know, dealing with publishers and dealing with editors. So it's a shared experience that you can have. And I could probably email David and say, hey, I've gone through the same experience and we've, we were in the same show. Let's get coffee. And I can do that because we've gone through the experience. No, I, I totally get it. I, I mean, mine's different, but in the, in the media world, because we make videos for Bloomberg, because I've even just this podcast, it's how I got in with Forbes. It's how I did my thing with NBC. It's, you know, I became friends with, like, I don't consider myself a journalist, but I've been able to become friends with real journalists who write for the Washington Post and yep. Fast Company and Forbes and Wired. And, you know, and by, by even just being on the periphery of what they do, there's that little bit of street cred. And so we've become like really close friends and it's been big advantages when we've been trying to do things for the charity or different stuff like this to be able to be on a first name basis. And you can text somebody, you don't have to explain who you are, you know? Exactly. Exactly. It's, it's very, very helpful. Well, listen, if people want to connect with you, I mean, obviously I think everybody should be on audible.com to get the audiobook, but they, but they can go anywhere to get a copy of them. If they want to connect with you or learn more about your work, where are the best places online? Sure. I think then is probably the best LinkedIn and Twitter. I, if you connect with me, I, I post regularly and I will, I, will, I will listen to what you say if you, if you send me a message. So that's that's one. And also, you know, yeah, read the book or, or listen to it. I, I love the audiobooks. I, I don't think I've read a physical book for a long time, but I, I consume a lot of audiobooks. So that's probably a good place. But you can buy the real book in bookstores or Amazon or anywhere else, or we, you can even get the ebook. So whatever, whatever is best, you can try that. Oh, that's great. Well, thanks again for making time for this. Thank you, Jess. Okay. Bye, everyone.